So there was a man in the Bible that you may have heard of. His name was David. And he wrote a few songs. Many of which were from his life experiences. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the song that we just heard and we thank you for the testimony that is behind it. Um, a multi-year testimony. And as our brother Tim mentioned, there are those among us who have had, probably most if not all of us, have had differing things that we have gone through. But again, we come to the point where we remember how you have provided for us, what you have done for us. And what a beautiful phrase to remember that you, you don't regret any of that. It was purposed before the foundations of the world. What a, what a glorious and amazing thought. So Lord, we thank you for that encouragement and for that focus of our hearts and for that song and the other th songs that we have sung that draw our, drew our attention to you. And we ask that you'll continue that as we just consider today uh, uh, our, our last uh, look at what marriage is all about. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to look at the significance of marriage. We have been going through our marriage series here. And uh, as, as I have said in the past, I want to say again, uh, I do understand that this does not directly apply to everyone in the room. Um, either you haven't been married or you've lost your spouse or, or any number of things. But the bottom line is this, um, what I'm really looking for us to do today is to encourage us to consider how significant this, this um, uh, covenant is. And, and we can all be those who encourage this uh, among us, all right? Um, along with that, I do think that um, there are some good things that young people can take away from this, and, and I hope that you will uh, consider that. Um, we began our mini-series um, on marriage by following Paul's lead through Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5. We began with instructions to wives to voluntarily place themselves under the authority of their husbands. We then examined God's commands to men to love their wives, to not be harsh, to nourish and cherish their relationship with their wives, and to live with their wives in an understanding way. Our focus last week was to consider how the Lord designed marriage to work. In Ephesians 5, 33, it says, Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. We saw through Scripture that the primary need for the wife is the re in the relationship is to receive love. And the primary need for the husband in the relationship is to receive respect. We saw that we can choose to selfishly pursue our own needs in marriage, or we can focus on the needs of our marriage partner. In other words, live selflessly, live biblically. Selflessness tends to create a momentum or cycle of met needs because each spouse is considering the emotional, spiritual, and physical needs of the other. Again, this is a review, so we're not going to go into that much detail about this, but that's, that's the, the crux of what we're talking about. 
So you may have noticed that we went through the individual then to the couple. And today I want to go from focusing on the couple to consider the significance of the institution of marriage itself. I believe this message can have, as I mentioned before, the greatest benefit to our young people. But I do hope that we're all encouraged to consider this great institution, this great covenant. And so the first thing we need to understand is, is that it is a God-ordained institution. God is the one who established this. Now, although we've already covered this previously, it's important to begin with the same scripture-based rock-solid foundation. And so that's why we're going to, to uh, kind of go over this a little bit more. Uh, Genesis 2.18 tells us, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I, for one, am very happy that he thought that, right? I will make him a helper comparable to him. In Genesis 2, 21 through 24, it says, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, because of this, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And then I just want to take some selections out of Ephesians 5, rather than read the entire portion that we looked at, just for time's sake, to consider Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. As the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. 28, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. And then 31, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, just like we read in Genesis. So as I said, we're going to consider the significance of marriage, and it's vital that we determine how marriage began, why and when marriage was created. God established the marriage relationship. Marriage was created so that God's image bearers would have a partnership for life and that they would bear children. Marriage was established in the beginning with the first couple. And this is all extremely significant because God is over marriage, not man. Therefore, we're answerable to him. He's the one who established it. He's the one who created us. He's the one who makes the rules. And so it is by his rules that we are to abide by. And so one of the main things that I want to see when it comes to the significance of marriage is that, oh, sorry, I missed one. We'll get there. Is, is the significance of marriage in relation to an exclusive commitment. Many secularists and others will argue that marriage is a social construct. That means that we made it up. However, there are many others who join them in rejecting God's creation of and standards for marriage, right? I mean, it's, it's a fairly common thing today. According to the Word of God, marriage is an exclusive relationship between a man and a woman. I'm going to take from our selection today and have us look at Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 9. 
Jesus also quotes from Genesis, as we see. It says, but from the beginning of the creation, God, and then he starts the quote, made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not, let not man separate. As we consider this, I just want to add that Jesus, right? You probably have a red letter edition in front of you. I didn't put a red letter edition up here, but now I did, right? So the latter part of this passage, Jesus is saying this. The, 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 the quote from Genesis stops, and then Jesus is still speaking, and he says, so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now he's saying what's already been said, but then he says, therefore, what God has joined together let not man separate. This is to be a lifelong commitment, a lifelong relationship, and it is to be exclusive at all times. Now, we might ask the question, well, what about the polygamy that's so prevalent in the Bible? I mean, come on. David was blessed. He had multiple wives. Solomon was blessed. He had multiple wives. Well, First, we need to understand, and I, and, I, and I didn't include this scripture, but the Lord tells us back in the, in the, in the, um, uh, the law that they were not to add multiple wives. Okay, so let's just make sure we understand that. Polygamy may stand out, but there are far more everyday references to monogamy, to single spouse marriages. We just don't see it because it just says, and his wife or her husband and things like that. But there's many, many references. So, so I don't know that this was necessarily the norm. And many scholars believe that it was tolerated just like divorce, just like we saw in this passage where it was like, hey, Moses, he, he put that in there because of the hardness of your hearts. It was actually a protection for women, right? So that they couldn't just be put out for any reason, but there, there had to be some provision for them. So just like that, polygamy was probably not overlooked, but, but allowed simply because of the hardness of their hearts. Polygamy, however, is often accompanied by conflict, sorrow, and even violence. God's standard was and is one man, one woman, joined together as one for life. I think many times these things that we see show us how not following the word of God is the problem, right, uh, when it comes to polygamy. So it's not prescriptive, right? It's not something that we're supposed to do. It's descriptive of what some people did. Now, our modern culture sees marriage as outmoded, and sometimes there are people that say that is even wrong. By the way, we don't have to imagine the heartache, and even the chaos caused by relationships outside of God's structure. All we have to do is look at the examples of Scripture and look at society today. Folks, let's just be blunt. There's a lot of carnage out there because we are not following God's standard. So let's go through some contemporary attacks of marriage. And by the way, I, I don't pretend that this is exhaustive, but I want us to understand that since this is an exclusive relationship, there are some things that society does, that culture does, that works against this. So I want to look at some of these. First, 
And by the way, these are, these are attacks on marriage. This, the, the, these things that I'm having you write down here that I'm, I'm giving to you, I'm not saying these are good, okay? So these are bad. Just make sure you understand that. Living together is as good as marriage. Um, and we need to note that this is practiced by far too many people who claim to be Christians. But let's look at this from a logical standpoint for just a moment. Living together is as good as marriage. It's like expecting the wages and benefits of a job without formally committing to the company. Right? I get all the benefits, but no responsibility. No accountability. It is improperly using something without taking ownership of it. In every other part of our society, we call that stealing. So living with someone outside of marriage, having a relationship with someone outside of marriage is actually stealing something that is not yours. Living together, even having relations before marriage, is substituting God's plan for a very inferior one of our own. It is not the real thing, no matter what someone might profess. It's also common knowledge. I didn't even look the statistics up on this. It's common knowledge that success of these relationships is far worse than a committed marriage. Because you can have doubt. And it happens. It does not provide the commitment and the security and all those other things that go with the marriage relationship. The next thing. A marriage license is just a piece of paper. It kind of goes with what we just said. Now, the obvious answer to what amounts to an intellectually empty and altogether silly statement is that they didn't have paper or an office of records back in Genesis. So God has never said that it's about a piece of paper. Societies and cultures have their different ceremonies, but what we call a wedding has been practiced by cultures around the world for thousands of years. Since the beginning. So we formalize it today on paper. Saying that a marriage license is just a piece of paper is like saying that a high school or college diploma is just a piece of paper. There's no substance to it. Or that your deed to your house or your driver's license is just a piece of paper. It means nothing. So just go drive your car. Right? You don't need a license. It's just a piece of paper. Yes, it is a piece of paper, but it has words on it that represent a formal commitment and a legal contract. And frankly, that basis comes from the scriptures. We've already established marriage comes from God. The license actually creates a private legal enterprise between the husband and the wife that we call marriage. They're allowed to come together to bring their resources together, and to make a life together. It has always been what the marriage license represents and what the license bestows upon a couple. Now, there's another thing that's very contemporary that we have heard, and that is love is love. Now, first of all, if you really think about that, that is so deep. And yes, I'm being sarcastic. But again, 
This is all based on emotions and has zero value in relation to scriptural truth or even what societies have recognized as marriage since God brought the first man and woman together. The logical counter argument to love is love is that marriage is marriage. It's just as uh, relevant, right? Marriage may equal love, but love does not equal marriage. This was the argument that we heard was used to allow for same-gender marriage. The reality is that there is presently no law or government authority that can take away the right for any single man and woman of legal age to be married to one another. There was never a law in our country established to do that recently. We know that through slavery and other things, there were some terrible things that were done. But the point is, right now, what they're arguing against... It just wasn't there. The actual argument was that marriage exclusive to one adult man and one adult woman was unconstitutional. That was the actual argument. It wasn't love is love, even though that's what they said. When the Supreme Court ruled to change the definition of marriage, they did so from an emotional and cultural argument. It was based upon love, not legal precedence. Not an established contract covenant that had been around for thousands of years. Now we can argue what may or may not become legal in the future, but recent history doesn't indicate a good outcome. I believe that we are going to see a continual um, degradation of marriage. So, folks, I'm just going to be very transparent with you. When it comes to society and everything else, if two people want to live together in some way, I'm sorry, that's their business. I can't do anything about that. I don't have to agree with them, but that's their business. But when we change the formula of marriage because love is love, there was absolutely no substance to that. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, you're arguing against, like, scholars, I'm just telling you what they said. I'm telling you what the basis of their uh, um, findings were and their decision. Any man and woman could marry. Gay, straight, whatever. Any man and woman could marry. There was nothing to stop them from doing that. But that's what marriage is. To change what marriage is doesn't really change what marriage is. So we need to understand that. Also, 50% of marriages end in divorce. Young people, you got a 50-50 chance. I don't know about you. Most of the time in my decision making, I I look at 50-50 and go, I don't know about that. I'm not sure if I want to make that decision, right? And that's part of what they're trying to accomplish. You see, marriage doesn't work. That's, that's the, the general theme here. And again, understanding these are contemporary attacks on marriage. So we've been told for years that 50% of all marriages end in divorce. Thus, marriage is a failed institution. Success or failure of practicing the institution 
determines more the character of the participants, not the institution itself. All right? So in other words, the success-fail rate in one sense is irrelevant. What is the institution? What are we supposed to do? Now, on the other hand, these statistics are manipulated and false and have been used for decades to legitimize attacks on marriage. You may or may not have known this. These were projections based upon divorce, divorce rates as they started to climb in the 50s and 60s. They never happened. The real rate is about 28%. That's of all marriages, including second, third, fourth, and so on. See, Hollywood contributes mightily to the... Anyway, (laughs) many times these studies also conclude that Christians divorce at roughly the same rate. That is also an untruth. So here we go. People of faith are 14% less likely to get a divorce than those who have no religious beliefs. And those who have no religious beliefs are 14% more likely to get a divorce. So the marriages of strong believers, assuming that they are part of that people of faith, right, have a greater than 75% chance of lasting for the rest of their lives. Wow. Folks, multiple sources here confirmed this. It was all projections. So as we are having drummed into us, well, 50% of all marriages fail, It's not true. It's not true. The other thing that we uh, see as far as the importance of marriage is that marriage is a thriving partnership. I want to look at a passage that might not just come to the surface immediately, but I, I, I saw as extremely constructive in this. Turn to Proverbs 31. I'm going to read for you a little bit of a lengthy passage, but there's some awesome stuff in here. All right. Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31. Following as I read, and just a reminder that if you need to use our Pew Bible, it's page 574. So I'm going to begin here. Proverbs 31, starting in verse 10. Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. She considers a field and buys it. From her profits, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. You should go to the gym, ladies. Anyway, uh, she perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff and her hand holds the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlet. 
She makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchants. Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her, let her own works praise her in the gates. Now, some people say this woman doesn't exist. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not considering to argue all those things. What I'm going to say is there are some qualities that are listed here, right, that maybe someone excels in, maybe doesn't, whatever. Um, every situation is different, but these are qualities that are listed to give us a picture of a virtuous wife, okay? Yes, I think we can translate that also to a virtuous woman, but there are some specific things here that are related to marriage. So again, our subject is not, okay, let's talk about the virtuous wife. Our subject is talk about what makes um, marriage special. What, you know, what's, 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 what's significant about it, right? And I want to see some things here. First of all, virtuous wife in this context has many excellent qualities. I'm going to read these. It's a little bit of repetition, but it's good. She does good to her husband. She's a homemaker. She engages in various aspects of business. She cares for her children and household staff, if she has any. She is compassionate and generous. Her speech is marked by wisdom and kindness, and she fears the Lord. In relation to her husband, her husband safely trusts her. We would say that he has full confidence in her. Another way of saying this might even be he has her complete, she has his complete support. Her husband is dependent upon her in some ways. A good marriage fulfills and even celebrates the dependency the husband and the wife have for one another. The husband isn't intimidated by his wife. He doesn't suppress her or put her down. Instead, he is well respected as the wife is in, in part because of his excellent wife. Her husband blesses her and praises her. And we saw the children also bless her, but her husband blesses her and praises her. And she is to benefit from her own work. Did you hear that? It's not just for everybody else. The scripture tells us that she's to benefit from all of the work that she does, from her skills. So we kind of have to take the other things that we have learned about marriage right now, about what a husband's role is and what a wife's role is and the other things that we've kind of looked at these last several weeks and ask ourselves this, does this sound like a marriage where the wife is in bondage? Absolutely not. Instead, marriage allows a woman to have children, which most women do want, by the way, and most couples want, and thrive as an individual in that marriage. That's really what, we're, what is being celebrated here. It's the undertone of all of this. Yes, it's talking about an excellent wife, but it's also talking about a good relationship. 
This passage is heavily weighted toward the wife, but we see that both benefit from the relationship as both build into one another. And again, we need to bring all those other things that we have learned into this context. Marriage will provide a good life for those who enter into it if we are faithful to God and faithful to our responsibilities. Folks, I truly believe that. Trouble-free? Right? No, no. Two people just off skipping into the sunset? No. There's going to be problems. But there is going to be success because we are following God's word. Look at what this woman does. She's, she's really a faithful person. She's using her time, talents, and treasures for her family, for her husband, and for her Lord. Again, we don't usually look at this passage from that angle, but it shows success in the marriage because the woman can be all that God has intended for her to be. And frankly, the marriage helps that. It helps both of them working together to become what God wants them to be. They they, they help each other's strengths and weaknesses. And then we need to see... Boy, I missed a couple of notes there. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Got all excited sometimes. Uh, a picture of Christ and the church. Now we're going to go ahead and, and read back in Ephesians chapter 5 one more time. If you notice, I, I did not have us open with that passage this morning. We've read that a couple of times, but this is where we're at. Remember, Colossians is our basis Colossians is is the mentality that we're using, which is a little more streamlined. But Ephesians opens up the relationship a little bit more for us. And even though we did not examine this last week and still won't examine it to its fullest, I want us to see here the picture of Christ and the church. Ephesians 5, let me start reading in verse 22 and go through near the end of the chapter. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. That's Christ is the Savior of the body, the church. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Again, let's just pause for a moment. This is a wife and her husband, and a husband and her wife. Not you and somebody else's husband, or you and somebody else's wife. 25, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he may sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present it, the church, to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy without blemish. So, in the same way, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates, hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Then in verse 31, we go back again to Genesis. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So again, he has to put this in here because he's kind of 
paralleling these two things, some of these do not relate directly to marriage. They relate directly to Christ and the church. But the marriage is supposed to mirror that. All right? And so what does all of this mean then? I want to look at three different aspects of how we see this taking place. I just did something there. We'll get there in a minute. Okay. If marriage is a picture of Christ and the church, then a good marriage should point people to Jesus. Folks, one of the things that we need to understand here is this picture is for the world around us. An excellent way for the world to see Jesus is to interact with a godly husband and wife. Our marriages may be one of the ways that we can fulfill Two very important passages. Let your light so shine before men that, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Matthew 5, 16. And then Philippians 2, 14 through a portion of 16. Do all things without complaining and disputing. That's because of the context. That you may become blameless and harmless. Right? That's the whole point here. Right? We're talking about obedient people and gentle people. Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. In the middle of a culture that is anti-God. Among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Of course, we should all strive to live a righteous life. This isn't talking to marriages. This is talking to individuals. But in application, a married couple truly living for Christ as one can also be a powerful witness for the gospel. Folks, I hope that you have been asked at one time in your life, what's up with you guys? Your marriage is different. As we live according to God's standard, as we parallel the love of Christ for his church, and the honor that the church gives to Christ. As we fulfill our responsibilities together, and as we thrive financially, no, it could be. We see some shadows of that in Proverbs 31, but it's more about the relationship. It's more about the fulfillment all of those different things, people just might see Jesus. There's also an important aspect that we see here, and it's for our children. One of the most vivid pictures of Christ, uh, of marriages, uh, sorry, one of the most vivid pictures of Christ that the children will see is the marriage relationship of their parents. I didn't say it's the only one, but it can be one of the most vivid ones. We can't give our children and grandchildren the perfect picture of marriage. That's impossible. But we can show them selfless faithfulness for one, for one another by consistently living out the scriptures. Married couples, you can model a healthy relationship that will grow in them a desire for the same thing that mom and dad have. Folks, I was a youth pastor for many, many years. Unfortunately, 
there were some young people that came to me and basically their, their attitude was, I don't want what mom and dad have. I, I couldn't argue with them. Do you understand that? It is our duty as parents, but also it's a priceless gift to our children. Folks, a solid marriage is a beautiful gift to your kids. Now, for the couple, the husband is to look directly to Christ, his character and his actions toward the church as the model for how he loves his wife. Jesus is to be the example of how the husband demonstrates his sacrificial love. Again, we can't measure up to that. But that is what we are called to do. That, that is the model. That is what we are to strive for. And the wife is to look directly to the church's proper response to the husband's position before Christ as how actually to our position before Christ as how she responds to the authority of her husband. Who is Jesus to us, the church? He's the lead. He's the one that we follow. But he loves us. And so we respond to that. When the husband and wife are responding to one another properly and in harmony, people will notice. Again, it has to be how people notice a believer living a consistent life of obedience to Christ and the word of God. But it also includes giving a verbal testimony of Jesus. And so as, as, you're, as you're thinking about this as a couple, folks, it can be very rewarding to have someone see that you are different and then in turn be able to give them a testimony of what Jesus has done for you as an individual and as a couple. All right? But I just want us to understand, it's, it's not all about just what happens out there. Right? The, the, what, the, what the couple experiences is, it, it's really hard to describe. Right? It's like, define love for me. <laughs> well, Define the, the uh, significance of a marriage in harmony to me, right? Even, even the scriptures tell us that the, the, the way of, of, of a man with a virgin, like when, when they're dating, right, is a mystery, right? I mean, how all that works and how much they love each other and everything else, you know, in those early days, that's, that's tough to define, well, that's something that we need to keep with us. That's something that needs to still be a part of us regardless of our age. But there's fulfillment and so many other adjectives that we can use and so many other descriptive words. Um, there's, there's, there's a sense of, of purpose. There's, there's, there is a mutual love and a mutual respect. What we were talking about before is the primary need of one spouse over the other, Right? But both happen. We even saw that in 
What? Proverbs 31. So there is a mutual fulfillment that is just really difficult to define. So where does this bring us this morning? Let's begin our conclusion by establishing an understanding. I don't believe the scriptures give us a mandate to try to change our culture, even though we touched on it. With that said, we can and should exercise our rights and privileges as citizens. Some things have come our direction, and we have the right to vote. We have the right to, and even the responsibility to give our opinion per se, right? But we are to trust Christ. We are to obey Christ. And we are to proclaim Christ. Not cultural reform. The scriptures are directed to us. We are to do the repenting and the trusting and the obeying. And that includes our marriages. Folks, just as as an entity, the world isn't going to do that. Now, there are those there that God at some point is going to save. And and yes, but, but as an entity, the world is not our friend. And the world is not going to bow to the standards of Christ. Along those lines, let's remember that the marriage and the home is not a separate domain with a different set of standards to live by. I think sometimes that's how we operate, right? How we project ourselves out here is like this, but in the home, it's like this. We should consider the home the most vital place to diligently exercise Selflessness and the fruit of the Spirit. Selfless living and Spirit-filled living. All of our actions have consequences, but we forget that consequences can be positive, right? When you hear the word consequence, it's like, oh, I don't want to know the consequences, right? But they can be positive and fulfilling and sometimes even glorious, if we can't be faithful in our homes, then we can be faithful, then we can't be faithful in any other situation of life, right? But if we can be faithful in our homes, then we can be faithful in any other situation of life. It's really the crucible. It's where we learn. It's where we learn as children, and it's where we learn as newlyweds growing together with our husband or wife. This God-ordained partnership is designed for each one in the marriage to thrive because they committed to live with one another and for one another. So we've acknowledged that a good marriage will take a lot of hard work, but a poor marriage will place a greater burden on us. So what do I mean by that? Chances are it's going to be a lot more work to have a rough marriage to have a marriage that, that's, that's marked by disobedience than it is to obey God's standard. Because there's always blessings attached. Regardless of how hard that might be, there are always blessings attached. We're talking about God's blessings, not just social benefits. We also need to remember that marriage is a licensed enterprise. If we could call it this, a private company. 
right? In a business enterprise, people look to maximize profits by producing the best product or service at the greatest efficiency, right? What if we approach marriage the same way? Yes, our product, so to speak, our profits, so to speak, are a little bit different. But what if we approach marriage the same way? What if we are focused on maximizing the everyday function of the marriage relationship in order to enjoy the greatest benefits, the greatest blessings from it? Wouldn't that be fulfilling God's business model? Right? So I want to encourage you. Have the courage to trust God. Young people, as you look ahead, have the courage to trust God for how you live in your marriage for the simple purpose of bringing glory to him. I said this another time and I'll say it again. Young people, you say, you know what? I, I, I don't want to have a bad marriage. I want to have a good marriage. That's a good thing. Keep on saying that. But how... How, and I can't guarantee anything, right? But how can you begin that process of having a good marriage? You say, well, I, I want a godly man or I want a godly woman. I want someone who loves the Lord. You be a godly man or a godly woman. You love the Lord. Husbands, wives, you be a godly husband now. Wives, you be a godly wife now. Yeah, you got to deal with it, but at some point, just bury the past. Pull a Paul. I forget the things that were behind me and I look ahead. Right? I mean, that's, that's what we need to do. And practice what God has given to us because God doesn't give bad gifts. There is no coal in the marital stocking. Right? <laughs> It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It is a shadow. It is a picture of the church. Let's make it all we can be, right? Maggie, let's make it what we can make it, right? All right. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> all right. <laughs> hey, you know, seriously, we, we can have a little fun with this. It is to be joyful. But, but folks, it, it, we need to take it seriously, that's all, right? Because God does. I mean, this is one of the foundational things. God did not establish seers. Oh, they're gone. <laughs> right? You see where I'm going? God did not establish uh, Amazon. He wouldn't have anyway. Okay? You get what I'm saying? He established the church. He established marriage. He established the home. All that other stuff is just supposed to help us support that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, sometimes these words are heavy just because we do not fulfill them perfectly. I think that's why 
you made clear that we are to ask forgiveness from you and that we are to ask forgiveness from one another. You also made it clear that you will forgive and that we are to forgive. But as we consider these things, Lord, I I pray that if we are struggling in some areas in our life where we just need to work on some things, that we, we really focus on not only what it's all about, but who it's all about. And, and it really is all about you and all about what Christ has done for us, but it truly is about us too. Lord, again, I know that there are those who are looking ahead to marriage. Father, I pray that they would commit to doing it the right way because they want to honor you. First, they need to know you as Savior. So, Lord, if there's a young person here who does not know Christ as their personal Savior, they never committed their life to you, I pray, Lord, that they would first submit to you, submit their way to you, just like the church is supposed to. That they would place their faith in what Jesus has gloriously done for them that it becomes something personal and real. Father, in our marriages, and I believe that we really do want them to work, I pray that you'll give us the drive to put in the work, to be honest with one another, and just simply to work toward doing things better. Again, so many times we, we remind ourselves, it's not that we're complete and total failures here. But sometimes those things that, that we're struggling in can become the focal point and can harm other areas. Lord, give us wisdom, give us grace, but give us obedience. Because you want to bless us, you want us to thrive. And Father, we've talked about the singles among us. Again, maybe this message isn't directly for them. But Lord, we can all encourage marriage. We can all be pro-marriage and stand against all the societal evils that are out there, all of the copycats, all of the denials, all of the perversions. And consider this to be sacred because you created us this way. You put us together. We thank you for the picture of what Christ has done for us. And I pray that we reflect that in our lives. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.